18th study in the great doctrines of the Bible or the doctrinal structure of the Bible. And actually, we're just in the middle, you remember, of the study of Christ as priest. And we have a, it isn't the middle, we have a conclusion to give to this. And then go on to our main study tonight of Christ as King. Now, for your markings, in order that the, uh, we will all have our lessons and lectures marked the same, and for those of you listening and studying on the tape, as well as those of you who are here, we will call last lesson, <clears throat> lesson 17, Christ as Priest, as far as we went. And then you remember I told you that we were adding a sermon on the act of obedience of Christ. And that then will be 17a, is the way we've marked it on the tape, and if everybody will do the same, please, so there'll be no confusion. 17 was <clears throat> Christ as priest as far as we came. 17a, the sermon on the act of obedience of Christ. And this is lecture 18, Continuing Christ as Priest. Now we have seen two points about the work of Christ as priest. And the first is the fact that by his death and his finished work on the cross, he removed our guilt. The second is that he also provided a true holiness and righteousness for us. That he not only gave that which was an act of, an act of um, or a path of obedience, but an act of obedience. And because of his act of obedience in our behalf, we now can be called saints, even now. Or as we said toward the end of last, the last study, he kept the law for me as well as dying for me. He lived for me as well as dying for me. And his keeping of the law is imputed to the Christian just as much as is his dying on the cross. Now, it's at that particular point that the sermon is interjected into the lecture. So now we have two things Christ has done as priest. His death on the cross, he removed our guilt. And secondly, through his keeping of the law for us throughout his lifetime, he provided us a true holiness and righteousness. Now it's points one, two, and now point three. And point three is that Christ intercedes for us. Now at this particular place, if you look at John, First John, John, First John two, one and two. First John, the gospel, the epistle. First John, one, one and two. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now then, I think we probably pointed out last time, because this is exactly where we ended, that he isn't saying Jesus' propitiation actually accrues to all men. But there is no other. There is no other propitiation in all the world. Now, in the first verse, the call, of course, as to Christians is not to sin. This is our calling, not to sin. But John, the apostle, is so gentle, gentle in pointing out, but if any man sin, and then he uses this, uh, this we, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He isn't just saying you have, thereby making two classes of Christians, one class of Christians who do sin and one class of Christians who don't sin. But he identifies himself as an apostle with uh, the rest of us, acknowledging that we are not perfect. Well, then what, what does Christ do for us in such a situation? Now, in up to this place in the uh, study of Christ as priest, we have read the first part, and I've never concluded the answer of question 44 in the Longer Catechism, the Westminster Catechism. 
And the question is, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And so far we have read, and this brings us up through points one and two that we have made, the removing the guilt, providing us with true holiness. Christ executed the office of a priest in his once, and that's once for all, of course, offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God to be a reconciliation for the sins of his people. Semicolon, and now this is what we haven't read before, and in making continual intercession for them. Now, the contrast here is very sharp and very biblical. What he did for us as a sacrifice and providing reconciliation was once for all. That's past tense. It's finished. It's done. But in making continual intercession for them is present tense. The one would be a once-for-all thing, the other a continuing thing. The one thing would be finished almost 2,000 years ago now when Jesus died upon the cross. The other is a continuing thing at the present time. So now let me read this again. Christ executed the office of a priest in his once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God to be a reconciliation for the sins of his people and in making continual intercession for them. Now that third aspect, uh, the aspect there, continually making intercession for them, is what we are discussing at the end of our study of Christ as priest. Now let's feel very strongly the force of what's involved here. Christ's death and his act of obedience, is, these are complete. They are infinite and they are past. Being infinite, they are enough. There's nothing that can be added to them, nothing ne that needs to be added to them. But there is this present work of Christ for us also as priest, and that is his intercession. Now, the Bible very clearly points out to us that we need this intercession. In Revelation 12.10, we read, the book of the Apocalypse 12.10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come the salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and power of his and the power of his Christ, or the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down. But the accuser is the word I want us to know here. Satan is our accuser. This is not something just before Christ's death. It is now. So the biblical picture is that we are not involved in a, what I would call, a piece of theater. We're not involved in a mock battle. There is a real battle, there is a real devil, and the devil is accusing us now. Satan is not finished. He is accusing us. Now, here this, of course, is in the book of Revelation, which pulls it up into our own era. But the, the clearest picture, of course, that we have anywhere in the Bible concerning this activity of Satan as accusing the brethren is found in what I think is the oldest book of the Bible, and that is in the book of Job. And in the book of Job, you have Satan, Satan challenging God concerning Job. And you have in Job 1.9... And Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Doth Job fear God for naught? In other words, he's saying to, to God, uh, Will you say Job is, loves you, he's following you? But after all, haven't you given him everything? Haven't you given him everything? And then uh, we find here Satan as, uh, as I say, it's not a piece of theater. It's pictured as reality casting something into God's teeth, as it were. We could speak this way about God. And that is, uh, after all, you've given him everything. So here we have an accusation, the very kind of thing that's pictured in Revelation 12.10. Or in the second chapter, in the fourth verse, we find after uh, this battle has begun, <clears throat> we find Satan saying again, and Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. So what we have here is this emphasis on the fact, well, it's perfectly true, you've taken away things external to himself, but you haven't hit him. So we have here an actual picture, a pulling back of the curtain, 
of something that is not a piece of theater, wherein there is uh, uh, the devil, and he is accusing Job. He is accusing Job. Now, in a situation like this, we have the entrance of the factor, as it's taught in Scripture, that we have an advocate. We have an advocate, as 1 John uh, 2, 1 says. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, John's use of the word advocate here is a very intriguing word because here, in using the word advocate, it is a legal term. Here is a pleader for us in the area of that uh, would bring it into the area, as it were, of a law court where there is a lawyer pleading our case. Here is a lawyer pleading our case. So when we, as Christians, if we are Christians, as we listen here and listen on the tape, uh, when we are, when we fall into sin, little children, I write these things to you that you sin not. But if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We are not left as it were naked, because here is Christ, and Christ pleads our case. Now this is exactly the biblical picture of the intercession of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, once we are Christians, we should indeed strive not to sin. But the Bible does not teach sinless perfection in this present life. It doesn't mean we shouldn't grieve when we do sin, but it does not teach sinless perfection in this life. And we're told in the Scriptures that when we sin, Christ is on the right hand of God the Father pleading for us as our advocate. Now then, Christ's death his sacrifice was totally complete upon the cross. And he now continues his high priestly work on the right hand of God by interceding for us on the basis of his finished work. There's a very beautiful phrase that I think is, is very not only striking, but very strong one and very helpful one, and that is Christ pleads for us on the basis of what he has purchased for us. There is a very deep sense in which you can say that Christ never has to say please in his advocating, uh, in his work as advocate for the Christian. The reason he does not have to say please is because he has purchased what he asked. His death on the cross being totally sufficient, he has purchased what he asked. Now, if we go into a store, we may say please and thank you as in the area of, of manners and politeness, but if we're paying for the thing, we do not have to say please in the sense of a beggar saying please. That's not the same please. When we say please, uh, regardless of what language we speak, when we go into a store and we're buying something, it's a matter of, of simple uh, of politeness between men. When we stand and we really have to ask for something without any, any claim upon it, then we say please, it's the same word, but surely it's an entirely different connotation. Jesus does not have to say please for us with a connotation of asking for something that has not been purchased. He has purchased everything in his death through his shed blood, the sacrifice upon the cross, the once for all finished thing. And when we sin, he is our advocate before the Father on the basis of what he has totally purchased once for all in his death. Well, it's beautiful, but it's also very strong. It also, on the other hand, you could take it in the other direction, though, I don't want to spend too much time in this tonight, and that is to feel the perniciousness of the modern theology at this particular place, where you would have somebody like Bishop Robison and Honest to God saying, we must get away from the idea of God out there. Certainly nothing could be further from the scriptural teaching. Something in the direction of Karl Barth and the neo-Orthodox saying nothing with any clarity about an afterlife. Not so, says the Bible. There is an afterlife, and there is a present reality now, wherein God the Son pleads for us, present tense. It's not to be held in the, in the area of the new theology thought, merely of seeing these things as purpose of meaning, something like this. Not at all. The Bible indeed pictures a God, and the Father, Christ the Son, and Christ the Son pleading for us, now, a continuation of his high priestly work, not because his work, his sacrifice was not complete, but his applying it to us 
in our very present need. Now, the Bible insists on this point with overwhelming clarity. In the book of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, the eighth chapter, the first verse, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have, that's present tense in the Greek, we have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now then, back in the first chapter of Hebrews and in the third verse, it runs right along who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, and then the last phrase, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Perfectly true, of course, uh, that we could draw a, an overly naive picture of all that's said here, but the thrust is exactly in the direction which would be taken simply. This is the truth of the matter, that just as Christ is the creator, Christ is the preserver, Christ is the sacrifice, was the sacrifice on the cross, past tense, so he now is our interceder. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. In Hebrews 9.24, Hebrews 9.24 for Christ is not entered in the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So strong, so living, so com comprehensible on the basis of, uh, of personal human relationship and experience. The very opposite from any direction of a new theology that makes uh, all these things the absolute other. It's completely the different direction. So we find now that Christ who died for us once for all, Christ who died for us once for all, is indeed um, entered into the holy place uh, for us. Into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, to appear for us. And of course this reminds us of the first John passage in Advocate. Hebrews 7, even Hebrews 7, uh, Hebrews 7, 25, Hebrews 7, 25, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost, or evermore, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. The reason he's able to save us to the uttermost and forevermore is because he finished his work once for all on the cross, but secondly, he is an ever-living priest now, able to intercede for us without a break, without a stop, as was the necessity with the Old Testament priests. The Old Testament priests, no matter who they were, be as good as they might, they had to lay down their task at a certain point. Not so Jesus Christ. He finished his work completely, and he ever leadeth, liveth to make intercession for us. So we have in the 24th verse, But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. An unchangeable priesthood. Or the concept is, it could be translated, a, priest, a priesthood which passeth not from one to another. This being so, therefore, being an ever-living priest, having finished his work, he now intercedes for us on the right hand of God the Father. Christ's sacrifice being perfect, he now continues his priestly work by interceding for those who have accepted him as their Savior. Now, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ, which is in John, the Gospel of John 17, 17.9, he is praying here prior to his death, but as one examines it, one is aware that what is being shown to us here, his prayer prior to his death, as that which he does now, after his death. We have, uh, we're introduced to something here. 
how Christ intercedes for us. Christ here is talking to the Father before his death. Soon he will die. Soon he will be raised from the dead. Soon he will be ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Now, we know now, we now know something of his intercession for us now because of what we find in John 17. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them that thou hast given me, for they are thine. So here we find that Christ's high priestly prayer is of such a nature that he does not intercede for everyone. He intercedes for those who, by God's grace, have accepted him as their Savior. There is a very definite distinction here. In John 17:20, Neither pray I, pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So what we have here is he isn't just praying for those who happen to believe upon him at that moment of history, but all those who shall believe down through the centuries on the basis of their testimony. This is his church. These are his people. These are his people. So here we have on the other side of the cross a very, a very specific uh, picture, reality of Christ interceding for us now. Do I sin? I have an advocate with the Father. What does he plead? He pleads his own finished work. He pleads that though I may have sinned indeed, yet nevertheless his sacrifice is sufficient to cover my present guilt. Now there is one more verse that deals with the intercession of Christ, which is overwhelming, and that is in Romans 8:34. And the, maybe the most striking thing of this is where it appears, because the Romans, the first eight chapters of Romans, uh, as those of you know who have studied the first eight chapters of Romans and taken follow that course, has a very, very careful structure. It proceeds through justification, sanctification, glorification, and then ends with the assurance that once you're saved, you're saved forever. And he first of all speaks concerning this, verses 26 through 27, the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 28 down through 32, the work of the Father. And then in 33 and 34, the work of the Son that promises it to us that once we're saved, we're always saved. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, much more is the idea. Now then we might say, well, what, what could be much more than Jesus' death? That's final, it's enough, it's infinite. What, what could he add more? Well, nothing as far as our needed substitute is concerned, our needed propitiation. But there is something more that we need in the present life. which guarantees to us that once we're saved, we will never be lost again. And that is, what about my present weaknesses, my present sins? That since I have, sin since I have become a Christian, so often, so often I fall again, or deliberately throw myself in the mud. Well, now there is in this kind of a setting a much more. Not a much more as to what is to, to be added to his work, but there is a much more in answer to the question that is before us at this particular place in the gospel or the epistle of Romans, and that is, how can I be sure that once I'm saved, I will not be lost again? In this setting, there is a much more. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Here is the much more. There is the much more. In this context, it is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. Christ's death on the cross is sufficient, but we have a living Redeemer, a living Redeemer. In our history, in our history lectures we've been having the last few weeks, especially this last one, yesterday, the Farrah lecture in bringing secular history together with biblical history, we considered the fact that the Roman Catholic Church did not in any wise go back to the beginning. It was a non-Roman beginning. 
and then they simply took over. Well, the same thing could be considered in the art forms. Just as we studied in the history in yesterday's lecture, we could study the art forms. The simple fact is you do not find a sign, an art form of the crucifix, for example, in the early church. It is not there. The mind of the early church was not fastened upon a dead Christ upon a crucifix. They would be thankful for Christ's death, but their mind was fixed, fixed upon a bursting living thing of a living Christ. The important thing was an open tomb after, of course, Christ had to die. That was well understood. But the thing which to fa they fastened their mind on was an open tomb, an ascension, an intercession. So Christ is living, and he continues his priestly work for us. He continues his priestly work for us. He died upon the cross. That is a finishedness. It is done. It is sufficient. It is finished with the finishedness of infinity. But nevertheless, there is a present intercession for us. The living Christ pleads his finished work. He shed blood for me when I need this advocate. Now then, in coming to the conclusion of Christ's priestly work, there are three parts to it. Two are past, one is present. First, Christ died for us. He died as a substitute, and our guilt is removed. It is removed in that instant when I accept Christ as Savior. Second, Christ kept the law for us. Christ kept the law for us. He provided a true holiness and a true righteousness with his act of obedience so that in this sense every Christian from the time he accepts Christ as his Savior can be called saint. There's no distinction in the Bible among Christians. All the Church of Rome is addressed as saints in the book of Romans. That's, that's past. Present. Present tense. He now intercedes for. So there is a there is a present work of Christ as priest. As it speaks in the Catechism again, and in making continually intercession, continual intercession for them. So in conclusion then, Christ's intercession in heaven is based upon the finished substitutionary work for us. His intercession can never fail because it rests upon the sufficiency of his death upon the cross. He merits all that he asks on our behalf. And with this sense, surely then, we should be filled with wonder at the work of Christ, our priest, and we can comprehend that we need no other. Now that brings us to the conclusion of our study of Christ as priest, and we immediately go on now, uh, continue into the consideration of Christ as king. Christ as King. In the shorter catechism concerning Christ as King, question 26, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Answer. Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Here is Christ's work stated as king. Now, of course, we're studying the, the mediatorial work of Christ. So the two, full title here is Christ the Mediator, his work, king. Christ the Mediator, his work, king. Remember, first of all, we started by considering the person of Christ and then the three aspects of his right work as mediator, prophet, priest, and king. We come to king. Now, in both prophet and in priest, we saw that in the Old Testament there were prophecies concerning the concerning these aspects of his work. It's the same with Christ as king. There's ample prophecy in the Old Testament looking forward to the coming of Christ, which deals with Christ as king. 
The first would be in Genesis 49, 9 and 10, this great prophetic passage of Judah, or of Jacob, just before his death. I'm always a little intrigued by the mark somebody's put at the top of the English Bible. Jacob blesseth his sons in particular. And uh, it's a very poor title because some of it's blessing and some of it's anything but blessing. When we use the word blessing, we usually think of something which is completely positive. It's not so here. There's strong negative elements. But when we come to Judah, which is verse 9 and 10, uh, these two verses, we could call this a total blessing, but not a negative aspect. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall raise him up? And here's the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. This name's uh, applied to Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. The lion of the tribe of Judah. But it goes on. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the peoples be. Now, if you're looking at King James translation, it's singular, the gathering of the people be. But there is an, a real importance in the plural here, as we shall see. And the gathering is really the word obedience. The obedience of the peoples be which brings it into contact with the first part of the verse, a lawgiver. There is a lawgiver in Judah, and therefore what is needed toward him as king is obedience. Now, clearly this refers to Christ. As I say, the ninth verse is very definite, line of the tribe of Judah applied to him in the um, book of Revelation, and in the book of Revelation connected very specifically uh, with redemption. In the book of Revelation, in the fifth chapter, the line of the tribe of Judah is connected with a sense of redemption, which would be related specifically, you see, to what we have just been looking at, Christ as priest. So the ninth verse, really, of this prophecy concerning Judah deals with Christ as priest. The tenth verse, Christ as king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Now, some translations have changed lawgiver into something um, like the ruler's staff, something like that. But there's no need to this. And I'll show you in a second that I think lawgiver is exactly what's in mind here, and it shouldn't be translated something like a ruler's staff. Still in the direction of ruling, but I don't think this is, I think the word lawgiver as it's come down to us in, the, in this translation is, is exactly the thrust a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. Now, Shiloh means the coming one. The Syrian translation, interestingly enough, translates this, till he come, whose it is. And whether this is the, any gives us any picture of the original text or not, it might, it might not. Certainly it is the direction of the means Shiloh. Shiloh is the coming one. The coming one. And it says that this one who will be the lawgiver from Judah and who is the coming one, eventually what all this will lead to is the gathering of the peoples. Now, when you examine the Old Testament usage, the, if you speak of, of the peoples, you're talking about Gentile peoples in contrast to Jews. So the interesting thing is here what you have as in this prophecy concerning the work of uh, Christ as king, there is also tied into this a prophecy of the meaningfulness of this, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Incidentally, this is not even the first. Way back at the time of the promises to Noah, you have a note already of Gentile sharing in the blessing. But here it's very specific. Now this term, a lawgiver. A lawgiver, and in Psalm 60, in Psalm 60, in the seventh verse, and then in Psalm 108, 8, and they're both the same, so we just have to look at one. Psalm 60, verse 7, and Psalm 108, verse 8. 
Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim also is the strength of my head, Judah is my lawgiver. The reference here in both, of course, this is by the time of David, uh, both um, in Psalm 60 and Psalm 108 to this little phrase, Judah is my lawgiver, hardly could fail to be connected back into the original uh, statement by Jacob, because it's... It's Judah. The emphasis on Judah seems to me to be very central here. Judah is a lion's wealth. A scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet till Shiloh come. Till Shiloh come. So I think the word lawgiver is exactly the translation that should stand here. Even if it didn't, incidentally, it's still what we're saying. A prophecy concerning uh, a kingship of Christ. But I think the lawgiver should stand and gives it the full strength. Now, the next prophecy to which we will look in the Old Testament concerning the coming of Christ as king is in 2 Samuel 7:16, And in this particular place, we now are in the time of David, and we have God's unconditional promise to David. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. This, as you examine this, you'll find it a totally unconditional promise. Just as the promise to Abraham was unconditional, but then the following things were conditional to the Jews in a very real way. There were conditional elements within the unconditional promise. So you'll find the same here. An unconditional promise to David that the Messiah would come from his line, and thus a kingly line. The Jews always understood that the Messiah had to come from the line of David, the kingly line. And this is the place where it's tied in here. So here we have an unconditional promise saying that the, from the Lord directly to David, saying that the Messiah will come through David's descendants. Thus the Messiah will be from the kingly line. The next prophecy, Psalm 2, 6 and 7. Psalm 2, 6 and 7. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The Hebrew is the word anoint instead of set. So it's a very strong emphasis on kingship. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Zion, the hill of my holiness. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. You'll notice the interplay of Trinity here. And it is the son speaking. Now we are not left up to our own imagination in exegesis at this particular place because both the book of Acts and the book of Hebrews quotes this uh, passage and applies it to Christ. Applies it to Christ. The book of Acts in relationship to a, a passage concerning the resurrection of Jesus and then also the book of Hebrews deals with this with Christ. So here we have a specific prophecy that the New Testament applies to Jesus, a prophecy concerning Jesus being the Messiah, looking ahead, being a king. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7 Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hated wicked, hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed with thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now here again, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews makes very plain that we're not guessing when we apply this to Christ because Hebrews 1, 8 specifically applies it to Christ. So again, it is the same thing. The concept of a scepter. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. You notice, too, the emphasis on deity here in reference to the coming Messiah. Thou lovest righteousness. And then the anointing, which ties it all together with the kingly concept. So once more, Psalm 45, 6 and 7, the emphasis on the coming Messiah being a king. Then in the book of Isaiah, 
Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, a passage that we usually think of as a Christmas verse, but we mustn't let it be just a Christmas verse, very important one. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom. So here you have a number of elements brought together, but the thing which is especially in our mind is the throne of David and upon his kingdom. Upon his kingdom. You notice also again that there is the statement that he is this Messiah when he comes will be divine. There's deity here. There's a prophecy of deity for the coming Messiah. But it's not just a Christmas verse. It's a very strong, emphatic thing in a number of directions, uh, a thrust in a number of directions, but one being the fact that when the Messiah comes, he will be upon the throne of David and he'll, be, he'll have a kingdom. He'll have a kingdom. Then you come to a very intriguing one in the book of Ezekiel. And this is one of those places, Ezekiel 21, 25 through 27. Ezekiel 21, 25 through 27. This is one of those very, very, very intriguing places where you have brought together the, the uh, conditional and the unconditional promise apart to the promise. As I said, the promise is unconditional to, to David. The Messiah will come through his line, but it's not unconditional to Solomon. And you must remember where you are at this particular place. This is one of those places where you must understand the history or you don't understand what's being said. The, the southern kingdom is coming to an end. Jerusalem, if you examine the book of Ezekiel carefully, Jerusalem is not yet destroyed. Ezekiel is prophesying Jerusalem will sure, certainly be destroyed in a very short time now. The southern empire is almost at the end. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon is going to sweep over them because of their sin. And the line that came through Solomon has been cursed by God by this point. I won't go into that at this particular time. It isn't our interest. But by this particular time, the line which came through Solomon has definitely been cursed by God because of their sinfulness. So the conditional portion of the, of the promise is operating here, and Solomon's line is not going to be king. But this does not mean that God's unconditional promises to David will not function. And so Ezekiel, speaking for God here, the mouthpiece of God, is speaking to the king that still... Uh, the, the line that's still reigning in, in Judah, because the destruction hasn't quite yet fallen. And thou profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come when iniquity shall have an end, thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. And the Hebrew is perverted, 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 perverted. And it shall be no more. And then this tremendous phrase. Until he come, whose right it is, and I will give it unto him. It's one of the most exciting prophecies you could find. The line of Solomon is to be cut off, but not the line of David. And this phrase here, until he come whose right it is certainly anyone who has any sense of the feeling of these things we've been going through will remember genesis 49:10. here is shiloh the coming one the coming one so the prophecy will be fulfilled the line will be through judah the line will be through david but the line will not be through solomon's line it is perverted it will be overthrown but there is the coming one shiloh and it's his by right, and the reign will be given to him, and that is the Messiah, the Messiah. This is Christ. And, of course, I would only say in passing that in the genealogies, it is very plain that Jesus did not come 
on the side of Mary through Solomon, but through a, another son of David and Bathsheba, that is Nathan. So in reality, he came indeed through David, but not through Solomon. Just exactly what we find here. Then uh, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, of course this is a prophecy, and it looks down to the second coming of Christ. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like a son of man, come with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, here's the Father and the Son. And they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which, uh, that which shall not be destroyed. The book of Daniel gives us the shifting sands of dominion and power among men, the shifting sands of empire. But here is an empire, here is a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And tie in very closely to the second coming of Christ. It's all people, reminding us way back again to Genesis 49.10, the peoples will be obedient to him. You find the same thing in the second chapter in verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. I don't want to get into the exegesis of the Daniel passages. You do that if you're following along in the natural order when you come to the prophetic studies, the studies of eschatology and doctrine. But here you... Here you have the same thing. In the second, in the setting of the second coming of Christ, an everlasting kingdom under, under the Messiah. Then moving along again, still in prophecy, Micah 5.2. Here's another verse we usually think of as Christmas, Christmas verse. Micah 5.2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of thee shall he come forth, the he, the person, unto me that is to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting, from the days of eternity. So here you have again an emphasis on, on his divinity. And you also have an emphasis on, his, on the fact of his, of his being a king. He will be a ruler. He will be a ruler. And, of course, none of us need to be, have pointed out to us that the New Testament applies this to Christ very expressly. And then again, the last of the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah as king in Zechariah 6.13. Zechariah 6.13. This is a very intriguing one, and I don't want to get into the exegesis of the relationship of Zechariah in this place. Uh, it's something in itself, but there's this little part of it's clear enough. It's talking about the branch, if you'll notice in the 12th verse. And this is looking forward to the coming Messiah. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the, the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. That much is very clear and definite. And here you have a very intriguing thing. First of all, just say in passing again, here's divinity again. It seemed to be indicated. But the, uh, that is not the thing I want to call our attention primarily here. It's the fact of the bringing together of the priest and the king. The priest and the king, which, of course, which should remind us of Melchizedek. The prophecy of Christ being the line of Melchizedek as a priest. His line, his priestly line, paralleled 
in the book of Hebrews to Melchizedek and not to the Levitical priesthood. And Melchizedek, of course, is uh, the first portion of this means king. He is the king of Salem. And here you have, um, here you have the same thing, the bringing together of priest and king. So the priest is going to sit upon his throne, which is pretty, quite exciting. It's exciting. We've studied tonight just the end of Christ as priest, but he's going to be a priest and king. Now, actually, the prophecies, however, of Christ as king do not stop in the Old Testament. They go right on into the New Testament. And so you find in Luke 1, Luke 1, where you have the prophecies concerning Christ before he's born. Luke 1, 31, 32, and 33. Luke 1, 31, 32, and 33. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb. Now, this is a prophecy just as much as any Old Testament prophecy. It's the angel speaking to Mary before the child is even conceived. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, if you have in mind the, the, uh, David, uh, the Daniel passages, of course, you hear a strong ring here of the same thing. Now, you notice as the angel makes this promise to Mary, a number of factors are involved. First of all, the child will be born, even though she has had no sexual relationship with a man. He will be virgin born. And his name will be Jesus, which relates, which relates to his work. He will be a savior. A savior not only to everybody else, but to his mother, incidentally, Mary. And he will be God. It says so. This is not surprises as we think of the Old Testament prophecies we've looked at this evening concerning Christ as king and the emphasis on deity. But on his human side, he will be of the family of David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. He will be king of the Jews. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. So we'll have here... He will be on the, God's going to give him the throne, the throne of his father David. He's going to rule over the Jews as king, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, this is just as much a prophecy, as I've said, as anything in the Old Testament, and in, about the coming Messiah, and it involves very strongly an emphasis on the fact he will be a king. You remember in Luke 2.11, where the angel appeared to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The same thing is true. A Savior, but born in the city of David, of the, of the kingly line. But here in this passage, it's stronger than merely he is of the kingly line in Luke 1, 32, 32 and 33, but God's going to give him the throne of his father David. He's going to reign over the Jews forever and of his kingdom. There's not going to be any end. Now you remember more in the, uh, after the birth of Jesus, the emphasis on his kingship is interwoven very strenuously in the book of Matthew in the second chapter. Uh, his kingship is interwoven with his birth. In Matthew 2, 2, 3, and 6. So here come the wise men. What's, what's their question? Saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? This is their question, not where is the Savior. Their question had no relationship to him as Savior. It was, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him as king of the Jews. And to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have 
back there, Carl Saints. Blessing be the God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. That's what we have as saints. That's what we have. But at the same time, we are told that we are to walk as become a saint. We are to walk as become a saint. And this is exactly the balance that God's Word gives us. Exactly the word that God's Word gives us. We are saints indeed. But we are to walk as become a saint. This is the emphasis here in this passage. Receive, as he says in Romans, receive her as become a saint. The emphasis of the word is the simple emphasis that we are saints when we are clothed upon with the righteousness which we have in Christ. But we're not to forget that we are saints and we're to walk according to that calling. We're to walk according to that calling. If we are a saint in God's sight now, on the basis of what Christ has done for us, if that is so, then the Word of God insists, walk that way. Walk that way. It's not that you build your road to righteousness by your good acts, but that already being a saint in the sight of God, the calling is on the basis of the work of the Lord Jesus through faith in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk that way now. It is not a very pretty picture for saints to walk so contrary to those things which Christ has done for us. And to keep the picture in perfect balance, we must remember that though it is true that the righteous robe in which we're clothed is the work of Christ and not our own, <coughs> this doesn't mean for a moment that the way we walk does not affect history. It does. Our walk has a significance in history. Because we're clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, and in God's sight we are saints now, does not mean that the practice of our walk does not affect the acceptance of other people of Christ as Savior or hinder them. So the Bible is very careful to give the balance. And if we had an evening service, on Sunday night, which we don't have, I would feel called upon to preach the other side of this same great thing that God gives us and brings together in these passages. And that is, there is a believer's judgment. And in matter, in God's sight, how as saints we now walk. It matters now how we walk. And so in Ephesians 5, having spoken of our being saints in the first chapter, 
We can read, Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also loved us, and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. 